Welcome to Disruption Dialogues Podcast Season 2. Listen to the influential leaders and trailblazers from around the world as they share invaluable insights to navigating the fifth industrial revolution. Hello to all our viewers and welcome to yet another episode of uh, Disruption Dialogue Season 2. I am your host, Vinod Chikaredi, Chief Customer Officer at Markets and Markets. Today, I am in conversation with Stefan Hendricks, Senior Vice President of the Cybersecurity Business at NTT. As a quick introduction to our guest today, Stefan is a seasoned IT executive who specializes in positioning complex security solutions for top EMEA customers at the executive level. He brings to the table his strengths in multilingual communication and global sales strategy development. Welcome. Welcome to the conversation, Stefan. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's take a first couple of minutes, uh, viewers, to understand why we are discussing zero trust security as a topic today. Yes, that is the topic of discussion. And you might be wondering, what is zero trust security? The reason uh, we at Markets and Markets believe that this is a critical space within cybersecurity is because our research estimates that the zero trust market will be growing from roughly $17 billion in 2022 to $40.40 billion in 2027, with a CAGR of just under 20%. This is one of the fastest growing segments in security, and it's not just companies, but also governments across the world that are looking to digitize citizen services who are looking at ways to implement zero trust. The growth is also being driven by solution vendors who have brought zero trust to the focus of discussion, investments being made into the sector, innovations happening here, the regulatory environment which mandates a security environment which is highly stable, and of course the um, high adoption rates of technology which have led to this um, solution becoming forefront, especially with the work from home environment that has become a hybrid today. So uh, Stefan, I would like to ask you, what does zero trust mean in a business context? Can you help us demystify this terminology? Yeah, absolutely. So zero trust is uh, not a new concept, but it has become very popular lately, uh, at the, even at the board level. And in essence, what it means is that you will reduce your implicit trust to zero trust. Um, so what does that mean? Um, if you take uh, the definition uh, of, uh, of zero trust, it is typically to um, you know never trust, always validate and assume breach, right? So those are the three key uh, paradigms. So it's a, a philosophy more than I would say a technology solution. Uh, of course, people, uh, in uh, the industry will say we have a, a zero trust solution and that will solve all of your problems, but we know that's not true, right? So it's uh, it's quite a, a complex uh, thing to, to implement. Now, what does that mean uh, moving from uh, implicit trust to zero trust? If you look at the uh, an, an IT and application landscape and you compare that to a castle and a moat where your crown jewels sit in the castle and they are protected by the walls and by the moat and the, the bridge. That's the traditional security model, right? Um, so the problem of that traditional model is if you get through the wall, 
uh, into the castle, there is no more additional security. So you can go straight into the, the guard tower and steal the crown jewels, right? Um, and the uh, analogy in IT is that when people connect from their laptop through what's called a VPN, a virtual private network, into the enterprise IT infrastructure and application landscape, that they cross the bridge and often when they get at the other side of the bridge, they get into a flat network and there is no um, residual security. They can you know, access pretty much every resource and therefore could also get their hands on very sensitive data and exfiltrate that data out of the enterprise. In a zero trust approach, you have a, to use a, an, an analogy, you have more like an airport model. Uh, everybody's been to an airport at least once. Uh, uh, if you go to an airport, you want to board a flight, um, you need two things. You need a passport and you need a boarding pass. Uh, otherwise, you won't get on the flight, right? And the analogy with Zero Trust is that when you get to the airport, you have to prove your identity, which is your passport, and then you have to prove that you can actually access that application which uses this specific, specific data set, right? So uh, the boarding pass is the equivalent of, um, you know, say, role-based access control, for example. So instead of having a flat network in the inside, uh, with all the applications being uh, pretty much opened up, uh, you have uh, a situation where every connection is always uh, validated before it's allowed. So that that in essence is what uh, zero trust is uh, is all about. That that's a very uh, I think easy way to understand it with the past, which is the peripheral security model of the castle and moat. And then the always on approach of the airport. Exactly. Uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Stefan. That I think gives our viewers a good context of how to think about zero trust in their landscape. Uh, when when businesses look at zero trust, and and of course everything comes from the technology context, but as you said, this is nowadays a board conversation because of the implications. We've seen uh, ransomware attacks, a lot of things happening which are at a board level today. So what should an enterprise typically do when they go about setting a goal of zero trust? What are the business goals that they should be setting for themselves? So the obviously the, the, the key business goal is to end up in a, a much safer environment and protecting those crown jewels, you know, your critical data um, a lot better, having full visibility of what your users are doing and uh, and where your data sits and, and making sure that it's not being uh, being exfiltrated right now uh, like i said before zero trust is is not a product it's not even a service per se it's more like a philosophy right so so the whole organization has to evolve towards that zero trust uh, philosophy and you can't just magically uh, use a product to create zero trust uh, over a weekend it, it 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 doesn't work right it is it is complicated because it touches a, a lot of topics uh, from the infrastructure, you know, networking and traditional security, all the way to data security to application security. So it's a it's a very broad topic. So we we strongly recommend not to do it to do this yourself, but to actually work with with professionals, with experts that have been doing it uh, for uh, for a while now. The the zero trust topic is. Uh, you know, uh, between five and ten years old, uh, depending on on the region and the maturity of the industry that you're in. Um, so there's there is experience and there is a lot of uh, you know do's and downs. 
Um, in terms of how this happens, is typically uh, a three-year plan that is being built with um, uh, a roadmap, as we as we call it. You know, where we first understand what is the as-is situation, which, which typically looks like a cost-land mode. You know, in most cases, and the to-be, which uh, looks a bit like the airport. You know, where you want to get to to the airport model, and then a three-year plan. Uh, that is built around a couple of uh, domains or parameters if you want you know identity is an important one because you end up with a very identity centric model uh, workloads workloads are applications that are running in your environment whether it's on-prem in your data center or in the cloud um, the access of course the whole access management of your users and then uh, the data and how the data is structured and uh, how the data security has been set up so that's a uh, at a high level, how this uh, how this happens. Now there are um, you know a number of of challenges associated with that when when organizations are rolling out a zero trust uh, as part of a uh, digital transformation. Um, there's there's a couple of challenges that the boards uh, board level people need to be aware of, um, and I always summarize that with. Uh, the the big three C's right. So the the, the first one is around change management. Um, zero trust is is as much a cultural innovation as a as a technological one. So getting people to change their behavior uh, requires communication, requires training, and zero trust uh, um, enables, uh, of course, secure execution of innovation and business strategy. But it's it's it has to be backed by the people. If it's not uh, embedded in the philosophy of the enterprise if not everybody in the enterprise has a good understanding of what zero trust actually means and why it is advantageous for them personally and for the organization as a whole um, it is uh, bound to fail so it's it's absolutely critical that uh, every uh, uh, you know, employee or member of the organization realizes that the ongoing benefits of its deployment uh, in supporting the the digital transformation are are loud and clear and well understood, right? So that's the the first point, you know, change management, the first C. The second C is is about complexity. When you see the uh, complexity that you have to deal with in uh, today's uh, infrastructure and application landscape, you know, a mix of servers, proxies, databases, internal applications, SaaS applications, uh, cloud-based and on-prem, you know, some legacy uh, applications still sitting there in the data center. So so, so from an application perspective, there's a lot of complexity there. On top of that, um, there's, there's the additional infrastructure complexity because you're looking at uh, network segmentation, you're looking at uh, uh, cloud security uh, and um, you know, advanced multi-cloud security topics. So, so fighting that complexity is, is a second huge challenge for uh, organizations and, and, and that complexity needs to be understood by the board because uh, you can't uh, do this over a weekend, right? I mean, you need a substantial budget to get from implicit trust to zero trust, and that budget needs to be approved by the board members who then need to be given a, a deep understanding of the business rationale behind driving that zero trust project. And then the third one, you know, I talked about budgets, so the third C stands for cost, of course. Implementing a, a zero trust model requires significant time. Uh, and uh, and human uh, and financial resources. Uh, careful planning is required to uh, go through the network segmentation, uh, go through all the access permissions, uh, the data security, the application uh, communication, etc. And uh, that is uh, uh, you know not not cheap. Uh, so it takes time. Uh, you need experts, and it will take you know a couple of years. Uh, people who say that you transform an organization into zero trust 
in a week are not telling the truth. Um, it is it is quite complicated. And maybe uh, just to avoid all confusion, um, zero trust is not the same as zero trust network access, right? Because often this is reduced to one little element of the whole zero trust puzzle called ZTNA or zero trust network access. Zero trust network access is only the beginning. That's typically the first step towards zero trust. The second step is usually a deployment of uh, something we call SSC, Security Services Edge. Uh, this is where you would put all your security controls into the cloud uh, and no longer run them on-prem. And then the third step is, you know, going towards SASE and uh, and zero trust. Um, so so it's a it's a three-year you know process typically, and it takes time and the uh, uh, the three C's, so change management, complexity, and cost, need to be well understood by the board before you actually engage in uh, in such a project. Uh, uh, not. Wonderful, Stefan. I, I think um, as we speak to our clients, we are seeing that boardrooms are increasingly looking at rapid digital transformation as they seem to unlock valuation, margins, and scalability. So the whole 3C agenda that you talked about, where it's not just about technology, it's about change management, it's complexity, and also bringing in the cost element. I think it's a great toolkit for board members and senior technology and business leaders to think about as they go through the zero trust journey. Thank you for that. Um, just pondering on one of the topics which you covered, the complexity, and you mentioned applications are a significant source of complexity because there are literally thousands of applications in a typical large company. How do you as a company go about deciding which applications require zero trust approach the most? On one side, zero trust affects everybody all the way from the board to the staff, contingent workers, the ecosystem partners, sometimes even the customers. And on the other side, you've got applications which span all these stakeholders. So how do you go about deciding the sequence of applications? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's not a, there's no, you know, trivial answer. Uh, the, the, the only correct answer is it all depends, right? Um, so there's a lot of things you need to look at. Um, for example, the uh, criticality of the data assets, right? So the applications, they access data um, and, and, you know, uh, not all data is equal. Some some data sets are extremely sensitive. Uh, think of um, intellectual property. Think of uh, uh, patent spending, etc. Um, some other data is, is is less sensitive, right? So there's a, a data classification exercise that needs to be done there. Now, from experience, uh, what I've seen in the field is that. Uh, what I call forward-looking uh, data classification and data leakage prevention, which is the security control that you put in place to avoid data from, you know, leaving the building, if you want, that 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 is, you know, absolutely doable. Uh, forward-looking means that every new document uh, that is created needs to be labeled by a user uh, explicitly from a data classification perspective, right? So that works. Uh, classifying data uh, of the past is a, a very difficult exercise because you have to uh, go through uh, very complicated algorithms to actually find out what document you're talking about and whether it's a confidential one or not right so so the you know the complexity of the data structures is definitely one one big thing here 
Um, and the applications, of course, access those those data structures. So the way the application behaves is the second parameter and whether you have role based access control, for example. And then the third point is how do you access that application? Are you using multi-factor authentication, for example, meaning uh, when I use a username and a password, that is single factor, right? If somebody uh, looks over my shoulder and sees my password, uh, he or she could log into the application uh, the, the next hour. So you need a second thing to authenticate. Typically, your mobile phone is, is very popular now, where uh, through a code, you can actually make sure that is actually Stefan Hendricks logging into that application. And based on the role-based access control, I will only be able to see that subset of the data that is actually uh, visible for me and that I should be seeing and nothing else, right? We also call that the, the need to know uh, principle. I can only see what I need to know for my job and everything else uh, is basically something that uh, I should not be seeing and therefore uh, will not be shown, right? So it's uh, again uh, the, the the first of the three rules of zero trust philosophy, never trust and always verify, right? So verify that it's Stefan. Do not trust me until I have proven that I'm really uh, Stefan Hendricks with this profile and that I therefore can see uh, that data set and then assume breach, which is the third principle. Um, if during that process suddenly an alarm goes off uh, that my session is being hijacked, for example, we should shut down all access immediately and not just uh, uh, check once every day, right? So you need continuous monitoring uh, and detection and response, as we call it, to uh, apply that zero trust across the enterprise in a in a coherent fashion. So I kind I hope that kind of answers the question. It's it's a very complicated one, of course. Yes, it did, Stepan. It, it definitely gives some thoughts for technology leaders and CIOs as they are going about this journey as to how they should be looking at this from a business perspective while bringing in the technology that they already know best. Um, if, if we move one step forward, let's say a client is already in the journey to zero trust and entity of course has helped multiple customers go through the zero trust journey and build zero trust into the DNA. What in your experience are the most common mistakes that enterprises make when they go through the zero trust journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've we've done uh, a lot of zero trust projects already. Of course, at NTT, we're we're a global company over over three hundred and thirty thousand employees. We have uh, uh, one of the largest cybersecurity divisions uh, worldwide on the planet, and. Uh, uh, zero trust projects are are very complex, uh, and of course, when you say complexity, you say mistakes, right? And and you know, if I have to kind of limit it to the top three uh, common mistakes, I would say the first one is underestimating the complexity. So thinking it's a weekend project, you know, we'll do this, uh, you know, uh, in the course of a weekend and roll out the whole zero trust solution. And on Monday morning, we'll all happily be uh, in a zero trust situation. That is not going to work, right? Um, you you need a roadmap, you need detailed planning, you need to do uh, what we call proof of value. So testing the technology with a small user community, making sure that it actually works, test it against your core applications, against your data sets, against uh, a representative selection of, of user profiles in different roles, et cetera, and see that everything works fine before you do a uh, uh, you know, global rollout of that zero trust project. So, so the first mistake is is you know thinking it's a weekend project. Basically, uh, I can assure you it's not. Um, the second uh, mistake that I often see 
is that uh, a zero trust project is being run as a pure IT project, right? So only IT is involved and they take all the decisions themselves. That's a big mistake because from my perspective, a zero trust project should be driven from the board level down. So the board should be informed first and foremost about what is zero trust? Why do we need to go to zero trust? What are the business benefits? Get a budget uh, and it should be a substantial budget that is you know, covering uh, that all that work and covers that complexity and then hand it to IT and say, look, uh, you know, choose a vendor or vendors typically and uh, make a pipeline, a, a timeline, sorry, and uh, and drive it through as you would, uh, you know, drive through an IT project. But it's not an IT project to start with. It, it requires board, board involvement for sure. And then the third mistake I often see is uh, that people reduce the whole thing to a vendor selection discussion, right? I mean, shall we go with vendor A, vendor B, vendor C? That is not the first question to ask. That is, uh, like I said, something that will come once you've done some proof of concepts, you've tested the technology and you know what works and what doesn't. Uh, and, and often things don't work. Uh, you know, uh, older client server applications, for example, um, can create a lot of difficulties if you start to roll out uh, zero trust uh, solutions. Uh, and there's some other quirks uh, that uh, you'll encounter, right? So. Um, reducing it to a vendor selection discussion is is typically the third mistake. So in summary, thinking it's a weekend project, you know, not running it as a business project, but thinking it's an IT project, and then reducing it to a vendor discussion. That those are the, the top three mistakes uh, I would say that I'm seeing in the field. Okay, thank you, thank you for that, and uh, that should help companies bake a corrective mechanism into the uh, zero trust journey that they create for themselves. Yeah. Um, one of the other topics you spoke about is cost um, in the three C's. When you, when when we as markets and markets go to our clients and look at what kind of pricing and cost models are they looking to deploy their IT systems in, then there's some who prefer a CapEx-based model. There are some who preferred a subscription or an OpEx-based model. And uh, of late, we've also started hearing uh, outcome-based models. And on top of this, there's this other layer of whether things should be licensed by devices, by number of users, by number of incidents. So, and I also know there's this added complexity that zero trust is not just for companies, it's possibly even for governments, which are multi-agency bodies with a much more complex landscape that they cater to. What would you say are the recommended pricing models? for this complex environment as they go ahead on the zero trust journey? Um, it it kind it, it depends on where you are in your zero trust journey, right? So it, it typically should start always start with a with a consulting engagement where we do everything that I discussed so far. So things like, uh, you know, the three year uh, roadmap, uh, setting up the priorities, doing the data classification, etc. Um, but uh, but once all of that is done, and that the uh, the scope of the project has been determined, it, it then comes to uh, choosing a uh, uh, a set of technology solutions that will actually put zero trust in place. You would typically see a, a an SSC solution, so security service edge uh, technology being put in place. You would see an identity management solution being put in place. Uh, typically, there's some work around uh, network detection and response uh, to avoid uh, what we call lateral movement. So, you know, to detect breaches in progress, 
because uh, assume breach is one of the three uh, big things in in zero trust, as I as I mentioned, right? And and so those technology solutions all have different pricing models. Uh, some go by number of users, some go by number of IP addresses, um, some others uh, would have. Uh, uh, you know, a cap number of users and then you pay a fixed price uh, until you exceed uh, the load in terms of events per second and all that. So it's th there's no single answer. From a board perspective, what I would always recommend is to go through a, a what's called a ROSI uh, calculation. ROSI stands for re Return on Security Investment. Uh, that's a calculation that can actually provide you quantitative answers to some important financial questions like, you know, are we paying too much for our security? Uh, what financial impact on productivity could have a lack of security? Uh, what's the security investment? Was it enough? Should we invest more in that part of the zero trust roadmap? And what are the, the benefits, both uh, quantitative and qualitative, right? So, so all of that comes to place. And uh, I, I think this is even more important than the than the pricing model, which is, uh, I would say, a format factor that is part of the implementation of the Zero Trust project. Oh, I find it interesting, uh, this whole parameter of return on security investment. Is that something which entity has created by itself uh, or is it something uh, which is an industry standard? No, it's by, by no means something we've invented. It's uh, it's uh, a, a well-known industry practice uh, applied also by, by various government uh, agencies like INISA in, in Europe. Uh, it, it is a best practice to actually try to quantify uh, your security investment versus the gains that you will get uh, in terms of risk reduction, right? So it's, it's a well-known practice. But uh, but what I'm saying is that it's uh, also to be applied in a zero trust setting um, to uh, to make sure that you get the best return for your investment. Because because you know in this roadmap you have to make decisions, right? I mean, shall we go for uh, you know a very specific example? Shall we go for a network detection and response uh, solution? You know to uh, reduce the exposure in terms of uh, lateral movement. Lateral movement means that when a hacker compromises the, the, the laptop, for example, the next thing he'll do, because a laptop is not valuable for somebody who hacks into your organization, right? Because often there's not much there. What is valuable is the domain controller where, you know, you can crack the passwords and then you can get to the core databases, right? So to get from A to B, you make noise. And, and so this network detection and response solution will actually capture that noise, okay? So that could be one option, but you could also invest in a cloud detection and response solution, right? Which is uh, more cloud oriented and takes a, a more cloud uh, angle into the problem. Both are valuable, but at that point in the roadmap, you have to make a decision. And then Rosie comes to help, right? Rosie will tell you, okay, if I uh, go for the NDR, you know, those will be the benefits. You try to quantify them, and that's like, you know, uh, X dollars or euros or pounds and uh, of return, right? Much like you would uh, evaluate a financial investment. It's it's very similar, but applied to to security problems. Uh, I hope that makes sense. It does. It does absolutely. Um, and now we've gone through the process of defining what that journey looks like. We've looked at who are all the stakeholders, technology, and business who need to be party to this decision. We've spoken about most common challenges and mistakes that happen. We've spoken about potential pricing models before the implementation is started and during the implementation. Now, um, rubber hits the road. 
when the system has gone live. And as you mentioned, things will go wrong and can go wrong and Zero Trust assumes that there will be a breach. Yeah. So what is the mechanism that defines what happens when something goes wrong? What does an organization do? So I often compare it to uh, building a house, right? So once you've gone through the high level design with the architect and you've chosen the materials, et cetera, and the builders come, and at the end of the day, you have a house, you put in the alarm system and you start living in the house, right? And then of course, even if it's super well protected and you have triple layers of, of defense, burglars will, will still get in, you know, to uh, steal your uh, jewelry or whatever that is to be stolen. In the uh, IT equivalent, it's the same thing, right? So you can put all the security controls in place that are um, available depending on your budget, but all, you know the usual firewalls, but also uh, role-based access control, encryption, uh, network detection, uh, et cetera. But all of these controls will work, but if, you, if nobody's watching the alarms, that's kind of you know futile, right? So what we strongly recommend as an additional component in every zero trust rollout is proactive managed detection and response. Uh, managed detection and response, like the name says, is that the detection, so the alarms going off and the response to those alarms is being managed by a third party. And why is that uh, such a fast growing market? Well, because a lot of our clients can no longer cope with the complexity, one of the, the challenges that I highlighted before. If you have uh, all of these security controls uh, sitting in the uh, infrastructure and, um, and there is a breach in progress, there will be alarms going off. However, if you can't sequence those alarms, if you can't filter them, if you can't find the proverbial needle in the haystack, it's very difficult to actually understand what's going on. So what you need is people who do this you know, for a living uh, and that are part of 24-7 teams, because that's the other thing. You need security 24-7. If you only do daytime security and you, you're not watching the house in the weekend, well, I bet you they will burgle it in the weekend, of course, right? And the same goes for uh, IT organizations. So you need 24-7 managed detection and response with uh, threat analysts, so people that do this uh, in a very specialized way with specialized tools and who can actually uh, what we call, uh, you know, restore the kill chain. So the kill chain is the sequence of events that actually shows how the attack has happened, right? It started with an endpoint like a laptop being compromised, then there was a lateral movement to a domain controller, then there was a, a brute force attack on, on the, you know, admin passwords, and then they became a super user, and then they kind of, uh, you know, got access to the core databases and exfiltrated the data, right? That's a typical kill chain. And with MDR, you will see the kill chain developing very early onwards, right? So you'll be able to capture that burglar um, before he gets to the to the vault of the house, basically, right? And that's uh, that's what we always recommend: simply deploying uh, all of the security controls that result from that um, you know consulting engagement and that three-year roadmap that you're working on is not good enough. You also need a twenty-four-seven. Uh, manage detection and response to complement that to make sure that you get the most out of that investment and to uh, maximize the the return on security investments uh, like i said before thank you stefan that the managed detection and response process seems to be a comprehensive way to manage zero trust environments once the uh, systems are live 
looking forward, I think we are almost at the end of the podcast. Looking forward, are there any new technologies or capabilities that you are seeing emerging which could challenge even zero trust? I keep frequently hearing clients say that if quantum computing comes about to be a reality, then all kinds of security systems will need to be revamped because of the way quantum computing works. Yes. What are your thoughts? What are you hearing from your clients on the future of uh, zero trust and security in general? That's a great question. So uh, one of one of my duties is, of course, to keep an eye on the next five years, because further than that, I, I, I can't even you know think of predicting what's going to happen. But uh, but you mentioned quantum computing. Uh, that is a definite uh, threat. Uh, the reason why uh, that is a threat is because most of our encryption systems are based on um, uh, you know prime number factoring, basically, uh, or number factoring into primes, uh, more accurately said. Um, and uh, a quantum computer can do that uh, extremely fast uh, compared to a traditional computer. I won't go into how that works, but uh, it's like the, it can think of a billion combinations at the in, the, in one second, right? Which a normal for Neumann computers, so the traditional you know, computer can't do. Um, that puts all of our traditional encryption systems at risk. There is quantum resistant encryption that exists and that is starting to get deployed. However, interesting what we're seeing now is that um, uh, you know, some organizations are now stealing large amounts of encrypted data. And, um, you know, in the past, we thought, you know, this encrypted data, if it's stolen, we we don't care because, you know, it's encrypted, right? So they can't, they can't read it. However, um, with the current key strength, uh, if you extrapolate, uh, and this is pure mathematics, right? In, in 15 to 20 years from now, all of the data that today we consider being non-decryptable will be decryptable. Um, with the arrival of, of quantum computing, you know, if you hit something like eight, nine thousand qubits, um, all that data uh, becomes readable. So, so that's a, you know a genuine concern, uh, and we recommend uh, people to quickly move towards quantum resistant um, uh, enciphering uh, algorithms because that's uh, uh, what's giving you a lot more um, uh, strength against those uh, quantum-based attacks. Right. So that's uh, that's the first thing. The second. Uh, Danger, uh, which I think is even more significant, is the arrival of uh, machine learning and specifically uh, at the, the advanced versions. I mean, what we've seen with uh, ChatGPT, the whole world uh, woke up in November and was uh, you know, utterly amazed when uh, they entered the first chat. Uh, so was I. I was blown away. Um, and uh, of course, uh, the dark side has also discovered, you know, these what's called large language models, right? So. Um, the dark side is now starting to use Gen AI to um, attack our systems. And the danger sits in the fact that a well-trained, uh, uh, let's call it, uh, you know, large language model combined with a neural network can actually uh, invent thousands of attacks every minute, uh, new kinds of attacks that haven't been tried before. Uh, and unleash that on test environments and see if it works. Uh, you know, much much like um, AlphaGo learned to play chess, right? It played against itself a million times, and that uh, uh, this this uh, development, you know, by DeepMind um, has uh, has actually, you know, become the strongest chess player in a matter of days. You know, uh, and and the dark side is now building, you know, something similar to create automated attacks and to attack or. Uh, enterprises, organizations, but also nation states. Uh, uh, and this is a quite a scary thought. So 
you know, cybersecurity has always been an arms race. Uh, we defend and the dark side uh, innovates and invests a lot of money to build weapons that uh, go through our defenses and then we invest in more defenses and that's how it you know kept going. Um, but the, the rate at which um, AI and specifically machine learning and large language models, uh, Gen AI as we call it, will, will accelerate um, the uh, building of very advanced weaponry is is quite scary, right? So I think there's a, a very interesting, but also slightly uh, dangerous future ahead of us, uh, Finor. Thank you for that, uh, Stefan. And I, I think while we five minutes back thought all the questions were answered, the last five minutes of this conversation have made sure that the future continues to remain a mystery. Uh, thank you so much for these uh, wonderful perspectives. I think our viewers would walk away with a great insight into what Zero Trust means, how to go about doing it, and also the unknown unknowns that we are talking about. Thank you again for your time. Um, thanks everyone for listening in. I was in conversation with Stefan Hendricks, Senior Vice President of the Cybersecurity Business at NTT. Thank you, Stefan, once again. And to our viewers, stay tuned for more such interesting conversations on disruption dialogues. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to know how you can navigate and thrive in this disruptive era, subscribe to Disruption Dialogues on your go-to podcast channels and stay tuned for more interesting episodes.